Today is Wednesday. It's March 1st, 2023. It's 2.37 in the afternoon. Hi again, this is John Williams. Thanks for finding the Mincing Rascals podcast. We broadcast portions of this Saturday nights on WGN Radio. If you're ever driving around, tell your friends to dial that in. You can hear me weekdays on WGN Radio from 10 to 2. I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. I'm Eric Zorn. I'm the publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, a fine newsletter on Substack, and you write to me at ericzorn at gmail.com. I'll be glad to add you to my list of subscribers. Austin, give folks the name of your movie again. Local One, and you can find that on YouTube by searching Local and the number one. Uh, the subtitle is The Rise of America's Most Powerful Teachers Union. Uh, a quarter million people have seen it on YouTube. Really? Wow, great. And and I'm guessing another quarter million are going to watch it in the next uh, couple of weeks because it has attained new relevance. No kidding. With with Brandon Brandon Johnson is is actually in the movie. Have I was one of those quarter million people who have already watched it. And uh it's it's a pretty hard take on the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, and of course Brandon Johnson is an organizer for them and is backed heavily by them. And uh, I, I think that, that Dawson's movie may end up playing at least some role in the, in the uh, upcoming election. He's going to have to answer to it, that's for sure, uh, because it's, the timing could not have been better for the movie and maybe worse for Brandon. What do you know? The polls were right, and the talk show host was wrong. I said Lori Lightfoot could make a late charge and finish in the number two spot in the election yesterday. Paul Vallis finished first with 34%. Incumbent Lori Lightfoot got half of that, 17. County Board Member Brandon Johnson got 20% and will vie for 50% plus one of the vote in April's runoff. My new prediction is that it's going to get ugly now. Um, By the way, my other predictions are that those of us who wanted a pitch clock in baseball are going to regret it and that the NCAA tournament or some other major sporting event this year will be rocked by a sports betting scandal. But never mind that. Getting back to the mayoral election here. John, John your, your predictions are bad. We've already established that. So you, I, I, I did suck you into mine, though, because on the radio and I said, you know, I think Lori can make a late charge that the progressive vote will be split and she's got a base. And you, what did you say about that? I said, I, I agree with you. I, I thought that she was going to thread the needle between Brandon Johnson and Chewy Garcia, yeah. that, that uh, Chewy had dithered for a long time not gotten into the race that had prompted brandon to get into the race brandon johnson and that those two were going to split that that super progressive vote and that laurie was going to go right through that middle and just and eke into second place uh and i guess i was wrong about that i'm, I'm going to be like willie wilson and say i'm not going to concede yet let's sleep on it we'll, we'll talk about it tomorrow oh, i missed that his willie wilson did he not concede nine percent he had nine percent of the vote he didn't concede last night. I, he he said he had to go home and go to bed and think about it. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, well, he may have he may have conceded by now. I honestly am not following the Willie Wilson campaign. I'd like to anymore, know. So. I'll bet we could find out how much he spent on his campaign, but it had to be hundreds of thousands of dollars um, and more over than the, a million, more than oh a million. millions, yeah, of, of his own. Do you think of his own money? Austin? Yeah. It was all his own money. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Unbelievable! Wow. So my overriding emotion this morning was I was sad. And I wasn't sad because Lori wasn't in it or Brandon or Paul were. I was sad because of the four years we lost. That When Lori was elected, there was so much hope. All of the wards in the city and voted for her, and she was going to clean up corruption. And, you know, it, was just, it, was, it just felt like a great day. Granted, no mayor has run into more of what the Tribune described today as a hellscape in four years 
of having to govern, but by the same token, I think she was her own worst enemy. And it's just too bad that after four years, we leave with such a bitter taste in our mouth. What a lost opportunity Mayor Lori Lightfoot's mayorship was, and I felt kind of bad about that today. Maybe even a little bad for her. I think, you know, you cannot extract your personality from yourself or yourself from your personality. She was what she was, and that was the hand she was dealt, and that's what she did. But uh, I felt bad today. How about you, Austin? What was your overriding emotion last night, say, when you saw the results? I was excited and a little scared of how you alluded to the race uh, ahead is going to go, which is that it's going to get very ugly. Uh, I think it's going to be extremely divisive, uh, and we saw shades of that in Brandon Johnson's speech last night. So uh, I'm I'm concerned by that. When I look back at the Lightfoot administration, I think uh, Greg Pratt from the Chicago Tribune had a good tweet uh, this morning saying a, a longtime Lightfoot aide sums up her reelection loss lessons. You can't run on a platform and then completely abandon it. You can't turn against the status quo, then fill your administration with the status quo. And you can't be mean to everyone who tries to help you. And I think that's a pretty good summation of her of her tenure. Um, I, I struggle to think of some concrete accomplishments of her term. I don't know what she will be remembered by uh, in Chicago in terms of her political history. Perhaps it is that, you know, she's the first woman of color to be mayor. That is certainly an accomplishment. But in terms of actual policy outcomes for the people of Chicago, I think it's going to be really hard to look back and say, you know, here were some wins. So I was also really surprised by... Uh, how the Chicago Teachers Union and some others are framing up this battle as another Harold Washington versus Bernie Epton and all of the racial acrimony that that implies. Because when you look at the numbers of where Vallis and Johnson did well, Johnson's strongest ward in the city was the 43rd Ward. That's Lincoln Square and Ravenswood. It is the whitest, most progressive ward in the city. Meanwhile, in Johnson's own ward, the 20, I think it's 29th or 27th, west side of Chicago that he often references in debates, he got third. Lightfoot was first, Vallis was second, and Johnson was third. So I think folks trying to paint this as a along clear racial lines and the fight for Chicago between an old white guard and a rainbow coalition. Uh, I think is oversimplified and wrong, but I think it's how it's going to be painted. I, mean, I was on the other hand, I, I did look at the map, the ward by ward map of where you know, who won and which wards, and it was interesting to me that a lot of the. I mean, like I'm in the 39th ward up in the northwest side. Dallas got 50 percent on my ward. Um, Lori Lightfoot got nine percent. She won the ward four years ago. I mean, there's a massive disenchantment there was a massive disenchantment with Lori life but i also noticed that that lakefront <clears throat> strip went for vallis uh, and and not for for brandon johnson or and i don't think that that's racism i think that 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 lakefront progressive liberal whatever uh label you want to put on it is really open to voting for the candidate that they feel is going to get the job done and you know our, our uh, friend mary schmeek told me the other day she said everybody in my neighborhood, she lives. She lives right in that uh, in that uh, that that uh, old town, Lincoln Park area. 
So everyone in my neighborhood is voting for Paul Vallis. And I, I didn't look at her war. Because they want it safer. They think that they need more yeah. safety. Well, I, you know, Vallis played a, a, a pretty strong hand with his anti-crime, uh, anti-violence rhetoric. I mean, he, he knows that that, as people were saying, is issue one, two, and three in the mayor's race. And people are going to say, well, yeah, uh, and they, they don't like, I mean, like, for instance, for, in my case, I don't care for his position on privatizing schools and vouchers. Uh, I don't. I don't like the, how cozy he has with the with the rabid right, the events that he's appeared at, the people he cozies up to. Um, but on the other hand, the question is: do, do we have the luxury? Does the city have the luxury of, of going? Well, he 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 liked some awful tweets, uh, and, and therefore I can't vote for him. I, I don't know. People are going. I think people are going to overlook that. On the other hand, um, I share Austin's concern, and, and maybe yours too, John, that this is going to be a really nasty race because it does pit it's it's all it's i look at it almost as a civil war in the democratic party between the far left of the democratic party and the and the people who are who are so far who are so close to the middle that they are arguably republican i mean that Vallis himself has, has said in the past that that he has republican leanings and certainly some of his positions are republican friendly and and uh so it, it is going to play out like a civil war between these two factions in in a largely blue city it's, there's going to be a lot of character assassination going on or character attack i should say i hope that it doesn't obscure the issues one thing that I, i'm looking forward to is a good healthy conversation about the various ways of uh, ideas about tamping down violence and the various ways of educating our children. I think those are good conversations to have. And, and I'm glad we're going to be having them, but, but I, I'm not sure that we're going to be listening to those if the air is so toxic. What was the thing that Johnson said last night that worried you a little bit, Austin? I didn't hear his victory speech. I saw some of the oh. stuff he said beforehand, and it was incendiary. It was pointing at Vallis. What did you hear? I'm going to win by dragging this person through the mud as much as possible. See, Paul Vallis is someone who is supported by the January 6th insurrectionists. He switched parties when President Barack Obama became the president of the United States. He went as far as to say that he is more of a Republican than anything else. These are his words. Which, fair game. That's fair play in politics. But if you looked at some of the CTU rhetoric uh, around that, it is clearly, you know, this candidate hates black and brown Chicagoans. They're, he's going to take away your schools. Uh, he's going to hurt you. And Brandon's going to give you everything you want. And and I, I just think that sort of base divisiveness um, is exactly the wrong the wrong track for Chicago. And I think it also belies the facts in terms of what issues uh, the candidates, how how the candidates align on certain issues and how that reflects the views of average Chicagoans. So we had a poll that came out uh, late last week from the Illinois Policy Institute on several issues that were top of mind in the mayor's race. One was public safety, which I think uh, the results of that are very interesting and do not bode well for Johnson. So we asked, uh, which of these statements do you agree with more, even if neither is exactly right? The best way to address violent crime in Chicago is to, and then there's two options. One's sort of the tough on crime approach and one's more of the soft on crime. Tough on crime is have more police on the streets and ensure offenders are prosecuted when they break the law. Second one was address the root causes of crime like poverty and a lack of jobs. Uh, Hispanic voters, 67% 
preferred more cops, the more tough on crime approach versus just 31 percent talking about root causes, the sort of buzz 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 word that we hear in every single debate. So that's a plus. What is that? Plus 36 for Hispanic voters in Chicago talking about wanting to have more police. And Brandon Johnson has in the past said things about defunding the police and has aligned. But those are parallel tracks, aren't they? I mean, you know, do you want us to put out the fire? Yes. Do you want to make sure nobody starts another fire? Yes. Of course. But I I think it is it it speaks to the differences in messaging, right? Brandon Johnson is not going out saying we need to fully fully staff and 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 staff up the Chicago Police Department, like Paul Vallis is saying, right? He is talking more about those root causes. And citywide, that's that's a pretty good split. It's like fifty fifty. But among Hispanic voters, hmm. they are overwhelmingly in the pro-police. Uh, and he's going to have to draw a lot of those Hispanic voters. He's going to need to put together the Chewy Garcia, arguably Lori Lightfoot coalition. He's going to have to take those votes because Vallis at, at 34 percent, he only needs 16 percent more of those voters. He could figure that maybe 10 percent of them are going to come. Well, what did Willie Wilson get? Nine percent? Almost Something 10. Like right. Yeah. If, the, he, if he gets the, the, Willie's, he's about there. That, that that Willie Wilson's appeal, I, I think, is is fairly strongly rooted in that more conservative element, and so you've got so that, now you've got him up at forty five percent, and then, I mean, that's so close to fifty that Brandon Johnson's going to have to put together a coalition. He's going to have to uh, run of, of those other people, and if he's not going if he's not going to get the Hispanic voters, if the Hispanic vote, if their if their number one issue is crime, and and they are basically two to one. According to the the poll that uh, the that the IPI put out, but they're two to one in favor of the get tough approach that Vallis is speaking out about. Then that's going to be really hard to put that coalition together. By the way, uh, just so we don't get too far from it, I was wondering how much money Willie Wilson spent on his campaign. Producer Pete just handed me this through the fourth quarter of last year, so this wouldn't include money spent in January up to election day itself. Willie Wilson had more campaign receipts than anybody 6.07 million dollars 99 percent of his own the next closest was Lori lightfoot at 4.5 million interestingly vallis and johnson are pretty close million and a half two million willie wilson put over six million dollars of his own money into this campaign that is mind-boggling. Um, in addition, that doesn't even count sort of like the campaign-adjacent things, like giving out millions of dollars in gas cards, right? That's, right. that's completely separate. Um, one thing that I'm expecting to see very soon, and which I think makes this a, a national story immediately, is uh, Randy Weingarten and the American Federation of Teachers. They pledged a million dollars to Brandon Johnson before he was even in the race. That's the big national teachers union that is the parent union of the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, they are going to double and and triple down on that investment, I would expect. Do you think nationally Vallis will get money from police unions and organizations? I don't think he will get police money nationally, just because I don't see that often. You don't see uh, like a big national police union like you would a big national teachers union coming in and devoting millions of dollars to races. But I do think there's a potential for out-of-state money for, for Vallis on one specific issue, and that is the issue of school choice. Uh, and that is a that's a very motivated and cross ideological uh, uh, base of donors who are very uh, invested in that, invested in, in improving education and see Paul as someone who uh, potentially could lead uh, the nation in something like that. 
So it's going to be very interesting to see on both sides uh, of that issue. There will be national money in this race, I think. That's a really good point, Austin. If you look to the Los Angeles uh, school board election, they have an elected school board in Los Angeles. And what happened was that became a proxy fight between teachers union people and and voucher school choice people. And they they dumped millions and tens of millions of dollars into these local school board races nearly all of it coming from outside Los Angeles. Uh, and I think you might well expect to see that here, even though as I don't think that Valls has said much in the campaign about school choice and school vouchers. Has he? I, if he has, he I did kind of it. He's, it certainly was not a lead issue in any of his ads. That's for certain. And even in states, it was not clear. But last night, I thought he said something. He, he w- was very strong about it in his victory speech last night. And he essentially said... Every kid, regardless of income, regardless of zip code, needs a great school. That means giving the money back to the community, back to the student. And that is really this idea of funding students and not systems, giving kids scholarship money like they do in Milwaukee uh, to pick a school of their choice. And that was the strongest, really, I had heard from him on that issue. But it was quite a, a signal, I think. That's almost a direct quote from something Lori Lightfoot said at, hers, at her inauguration speech. You know, just how everybody deserves everything and we're all going to come together. I played back clips from her inauguration speech, not her concession speech, which was also lovely. But her inauguration speech was um, filled with talk like that. And I thought the most interesting thing, like, I don't know if you guys remember it. I just listened to it, so it's top of mind for me. But do you remember her first speech when she became mayor, her inaugural address, and did anything jump out at you four years later now? Well, she turned around and confronted the aldermen saying that they (laughs) end corruption. Now, our four-star must be integrity. I know. (laughs) Putting Chicago government and integrity in the same sentence sometimes may seem a little strange. But, friends... That's going to change. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a whole litany. And, and uh, Fran Spielman had an excellent story. In the, there's uh, two excellent stories in today's newspapers, one from Fran Spielman of the Sun-Times and the other from Gregory Pratt and Alice Yen of the Tribune, looking back at the four years of Lori Lightfoot and talking about all the mistakes that she made. You know, that from And it's not, not just that she was crabby to a lot of people, but that there are a lot of, a, a lot of ways that she alienated potential allies and and tur- turned her back on promises that she right, made right but but from the get-go she really ad- adapted a, a two-fisted approach to being the mayor and yes mayor the mayor's daily were, were tough people jane byrne was tough and could be could be uh, really harsh and and um and wow. certainly ron emmanuel was ron emmanuel was uh um c- combative in his way but they all had a much better fingertip feel for politics than uh, and governing than than Lightfoot did and uh and, and so you you look back at these four years and you think of all the squandered opportunities some people were tweeting last night something that i've been saying on this podcast for a while which is that her failure to bring willie wilson into into her camp i mean that that arguably cost her if, she, if willie wilson hadn't been on the ballot she'd be able to secure most of his support that would have seemed uh, she, so pandering though i mean he he does not strike anybody as anything but a guy who has a lot of money who can buy some votes and is saying, well, I should be tough on crime. Eric, you you have said on this podcast many times you would have no confidence in his ability as a city leader, right? 
Oh, Willie Wilson, absolutely not as a city leader, but you bring him, you, you make him feel important. You bring him in for meetings. You call him once in a while. You get not only, you get him not running, but you also get some of the money that he's got. I mean, he's he is someone, I think he could have supported her campaign. He supported her in the general election last time. I wanted to circle back to another point, which is that four years ago, we did not have much of a contrast between the two candidates, between Tony Preckwinkle and Lori Lightfoot, that they were two uh, relatively progressive uh, African-American women running against each other for mayor. And so that, so that there wasn't a lot of, uh, there wasn't a lot of policy differences you could point to and say, well, she's going to take the city in this direction and she'll take the city in that direction. I, I didn't feel that four years ago. It was almost more of a personality conflict here. The reason that that I have some optimism that that it might not just be a total mud fight is that there are some real genuine policy issues to talk about. We can talk about who's supported by whom and and so on, but but there are some real issues about, as Johnny pointed out earlier, how to fight crime. What's the best way? Do we how do we uh, where do we prioritize? Yes, you can do both, and you should be able to do both. But but you know, to your house on fire analogy. The question seems to be, do you want us to institute fire safety measures? Yes. But do you want us to put out this fire first? Yeah, let's, that's the more urgent need. And I think that's what people are feeling right now. It's like, we got to get our, we got to get control of this crime problem. We got to make people feel safer in the city. We're not going to make it the safest city in America. We're not even going to make it the safest big city in America, but we can make it a much safer place. I think that's where a lot of the priority is right now. And so if you say, well, I don't, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on these root causes, employment, education, housing, and so on, that that may not be the right political message for the moment, even though I would agree that it's a very important aspect of, of long-term fighting crime. One interesting thing, and I, that is the one thing I also remember from Lightfoot's inauguration speech uh, in the Wintrust Arena was looking back and basically saying, like, there's a new sheriff in town. Uh, and she leaves the city council with the exact same structural problems <laughs> that have uh, it didn't be, work. That yeah, ex- exactly that have produced uh, corruption on the levels that you do not see in any other legislative body in the Western world uh, that you see in the Chicago City Council. So, it, and that speaks to, I think, structural problems in government that I've talked about on the show many times. But when you look at mayoral candidates for this cycle. There were some bright spots in terms of people who said, listen, the mayor's office as an institution, city government as an institution, uh, does not have proper checks and balances. The mayor's office has too much power. The legislature is not independent. Cam Buckner, I thought, was fabulous on this issue uh, and was really solutions oriented on many things. And I think in terms of bright spots of people who were running uh, for mayor, I think he absolutely was a was a bright spot and we'll see more from him in the future. He's talking about things like reducing the authority of the mayor's office. And Paul Vallis has done the same thing. Uh, and I, I would almost characterize myself as a single issue voter around that, which wh- whichever mayoral candidate says the mayor's office is dysfunctional, has too much power, and we need uh, something like a city charter to fix that. Uh, that, to me, is the biggest long term change in city government that we could hope for. And it's so clear that Lori Lightfoot's uh, administration did not strive for that. The. Um line I remember is when she turned and said we're going to end aldermanic privilege. When public officials cut shady backroom deals, they get rich and the rest of us get the bill. When some people get their property taxes cut in exchange for campaign cash, they get the money and sure enough, we get the bill. 
No official in the city of Chicago, elected or appointed, should ever profit from his office. Never, ever. Later this afternoon, I will sign an executive order to end the worst abuses of the so-called aldermanic privilege. And everybody cheered, but there were a couple of times when she was talking about ending corruption, and she said integrity in Chicago politics, and then she paused and said, I know some people will think that's a contradiction of terms or something like that. And everybody laughed, but they kind of groaned, too, like, really, you're going there now, here? Um, And I think a lot of us thought, wow, that's what we voted for, someone that's going to really institute change, but it just seemed like she never had the capital to get it done or the personality to get it done. Or the willingness to give up some of her own power. I, th- I think is what it came down to, right? Because you're going in, you're saying, look, you guys have too much power. I'm, I'm getting you out of your ward. You're not going to have any more decision-making authority. That's corrupt. She's 100% right about that. But then as mayor, she's presiding over city council. She's shouting people down uh, in the legislature. That is not uh, saying you get no power and I, I get all the power. That's No one's going to take that trade. The Chicago Police Department issued today the February shooting and homicide statistics. They are down 22. Um, they've been down uh, 20, from 20 to 21 to 22. The last three years, February shootings have gone down. The last three years, murders in the month of February have gone down. Um, the last three years... Uh, shootings January and February have gone down. We had this sort of anomaly of post-George Floyd and lawlessness during the pandemic, but now that we're coming out of it, the numbers are going back to where they would normally be, such as it was. I, I don't think that is reflected in the way that people are experiencing crime in the city. So while homicides may be down month to month over the past few years, crime overall is certainly up. Uh, I think last I saw it was up 55% year-to-date in uh, 2023 versus 2022, two months into the year. So I I just don't know of anyone in the city who says, man, crime crime's really getting better. Uh, I don't I don't think I've, I've heard one person say that. Okay, because crime oh, John, is terrible. Because well, crime is terrible. John, it's, you know, are, are you, are you cherry-picking those numbers? Are you saying, well, we're going to take this this measurement and that measurement? Maybe I am. I don't know. Let me just... Robberies. Well, you tell me. Shooting victims January and February of 2021, 410 people got shot in the two months of the first of the year in 2021. It went from 410 to 382 to 330. Um, If you talk about just shootings overall, the numbers go down considerably each month of the year, January and February. Uh, Murders, we had 43 in 2022 in February. Now we have 37. It's 37. It's more than one a day. But still, it's better than 43. The list goes on like that. I'm just talking about the first two months of the year. Maybe that's being cherry picked, but well, yeah, and and those and those, you know, from forty, we say forty three to thirty seven. I mean, that, that that could be a what are you a mathematician just here? A, 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 well, I mean, it could just be a statistical anomaly of some sort. I mean, that's that's uh, that's not a, a huge drop. It's uh, it, it's one of those things where you think like, okay, what are the possible causes of that? And it may have been something totally behind the scenes, some sort of a gang truce somewhere that that did this. I guess you'd have to look for cause and effect. And, you know, I frankly think that, that often that mayors and police superintendents get too much blame when crime goes up and get too much credit when crime goes down, that, that there's a certain amount of it that's just 
very, very hard to control. Well, do you and agree? And it, and, it is ba- and it is based in exactly those things that we were talking about earlier, the, the root causes of crime. It's, it, you know, the, the deep, deep causes of it have to do with education, housing, poverty, uh, jobs, all, all the kind of things that we, we talk about. But but uh, I think it's very simplistic to think that Paul Vallis is going to come in and do something awesome. The criminals are going to go, oh, well, that's the end of our, our criminalizing ways. We're going to go straight now. Uh, so, so I, I'm not sure. I would like to have more of a neutral arbiter than the Chicago Police Department reporting on the on the broad scope and the look at, at crime. I know that CWV Chicago uh, snorted at these these statistics in a, in a tweet this morning. They were saying that they uh, they said, "Yeah, what they're not telling you is blah blah blah." So, so uh, like I said, I'd like to see a more a more not CWV Chicago and not the Chicago Police Department. I'd like to see a more balanced, neutral look at what those crime statistics are really telling. Well, that Pratt Yin story in the Tribune did quote a University of Illinois, Chicago professor, analyst, and he said that mayors don't have that much immediate impact on crime. And that story also says Lightfoot has blamed rising crime on a mix of factors, including a lenient court system and the pandemic. She also said her administration deserves credit for a 20% drop in shootings and a 14% drop in homicides in 2020. 22 compared with 2021. But I guess we could all find some statistics to make the case that things are good, bad, getting better, or getting worse. But I think we've peaked in those regards. There's going to be a really interesting dynamic, too, introduced politically, uh, because this year is the first time that Chicagoans have voted for district councils, police district councils, which are these three-member councils for each of the city's 22 police districts. Uh, I'm sure there were hundreds of thousands of voters, perhaps, that went into the ballot box and said, what the heck is this? I've never heard of any of these people, and I don't know what this is. So uh, it really, I think, is a it, it does not help accountability of police because it gives people the semblance of sort of democratic input over the police department at the local level. But these local bodies really have no kind of decision making authority over police at all. Um, it's a very complicated Rube Goldberg-esque mechanism by which they then vote and appoint members of a different police oversight commission. They overlap with existing police oversight commissions that we have in the city. So unfortunately, while some people were sort of touting this as, wow, a new day in Chicago, we are voting for local authority over police. I think it's ultimately going to obfuscate accountability uh, when it comes to the mayor and the police superintendent and the city council and their and their role in public safety. I think it's going to make things more confusing for, for everyone. Do you count as a win for Lori Lightfoot in her four years, her handling of the pandemic? I do. I think she handled it pretty well myself. Um, I, early on, she certainly had a lot of cred with her, you know, adopting that uh, that tough gal, whatever, uh, that, you know, the... the Auntie uh, Lori. Yeah, strict, strict parent, getting people inside, um, yeah, I think she does deserve credit. Obviously, you look back on it and think, well, yeah, we, we did probably close down the schools for too long. I feel like she was doing the best she could under those circumstances. I think she was trying to follow the advice of people who knew what they were talking about. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you look back at the hand she was dealt with that on the racial strife in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Those were very, very tough situations for her to deal with. And uh, But, again, I, I feel like that she didn't – know how to manage that sort of politically in town and that, that was her downfall i think in in terms of the operations of schools i it's difficult to 
for her to shoulder a lot of that blame, um, given the dynamics with the teachers union uh, at the time, really, really, really fighting her hard on reopening schools. Um, but the image that is just sort of still burned in my brain from that period are, you know, plastic zip ties on the gates of playgrounds uh, for months and months and months and the lakefront being closed yep. for months and yep. months and months yep. outside that in retrospect <clears throat> seems like a really big mistake and something that probably um, contributed to poor health outcomes. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. We had different information at different times, but there were cities that did not choose to go down that path. Um, and, and it's hard to look back at that and say that that was the right decision by the mayor. Yeah, you, you, you think that like she was probably thinking, well, okay, if this is as virulent as we think it is, or as people are warning us about that, we don't want people outside at all. So we don't want them on the lakefront. Clearly, in retrospect, the lakefront was the last place you wanted to keep people away from. You wanted people to get outside, to get exercise to, for their mental health for, and their physical health, to, to be on the lakefront. And the idea of, of roping off playgrounds and so on uh, was, was wrong. And but then you got to ask yourself, was she doing it because she's stupid or because she's mean or because she was doing the best thing she thought she needed to do at the time? And, you know, I, I, I give her credit for doing what she thought was best. I always say defer to the science. Don't we all on that? And if that's what Arwitty or uh, the CDC were telling her to do, then do it. But I, as a person who had uh, not that long before then moved to Wrigleyville. We we lived two blocks east of Wrigley Field because we wanted to be near the lake. And then when the pandemic hit, we thought, well, at least we can go over to the park and walk around there. But the gates were closed on the entrance ramps to the park, and you weren't supposed to ride your bike or walk over there. And there were police officers there. Some people were getting through, but okay, we'll play by the rules. And it just seemed like such a overreach even in the midst of it you know we all had masks on for christ's sake and we were staying a really far away from each other if you said what are like just some of the hallmarks of the last four years that's what we're talking about i remember the bridges being up when the violence was downtown and we literally had to close off traffic having to ask members of the illinois national guard if i could get across the street to go to work because they were cordoning off parts of the city when it was its worst I remember the Steets and Sands truck being parked in certain places to block off routes. I remember the day that she said she was, for one day, not going to talk to any members of the media except persons of color. She wasn't going to talk to the white media. I'm just thinking about some of the hallmarks of her four years in office. And I wonder if she's going to write a book about her time in office. I imagine it's going to be very defensive because that's who she is and how she rolls. One thing that, that people have pointed out to me as this, as this campaign has gone on is that as a black woman uh, lesbian, she has like three really difficult prejudices to overcome. She's also really short, which, uh, you know, is, is, an, is maybe another thing that, that gives someone a feeling of like being put on. And so she's been dealt sort of in that way to sort of a, a, a difficult hand of cards to play. And, and that you would you would have a, a very thick hide you would be very you would be very defensive you'd feel more combative if you had those those attributes going against you in the in, in terms of how society has tended to view such people in, in the past so so that maybe that explains some of what her personality is like but uh but but, but again i mean i i think that she basically meant well i just think she didn't really know how to do it 
and didn't listen to people who were telling her how to do it because she had people in her administration. Yeah, I'm mean, even like a Joe Ferguson, who I think people are, are the former city inspector general, who is fairly widely respected. And she managed to, he was an ally of hers. I remember during the campaign talking to Joe off the record about things that were going on in the campaign. And he was really behind her and really thought she was going to be great. And then she ended up making him an enemy. That's just like, that's just politically dense. I don't know how, why she would have done that. I'm trying to imagine sort of a, um, like a high school graduation video with like a nice song playing in the background with photos over the four years of the people in high school. And the photos that I, that come to mind would be, uh, the census cowboy, yep. the, uh, Arwady and Lightfoot in those, uh, Clorox superhero costumes. That's another image that's burned in my brain. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, uh, the inauguration where she's asking the, the city council members behind her to, to stand up. Um, there's just not much i cannot think of a of a memorable positive moment of, of I, i'm really struggling to think of one thing one, an image of something that is you know really remarkable of, of her tenure well she was able she did put some funding into the south and the west sides the uh, minimum wage went up under her and also i think bringing casino gambling is arguably something that, I mean, she promised to do it she did it uh and and that could end up could end up being something oh. that would would uh, would benefit the city financially I, you know, i'm not big on that but but yeah you're right in terms of just uh, of, of images of things when you think about it i i mean one of the strongest images in my mind is that that cardboard cutout of her with her with her arms folded and she's yeah. uh, you know people were putting that i mean that, that was for a time a very positive image, it was very, you know, and, and she was she was leaning into it as well. I think by the time we got through the pandemic, or mostly through it, it was, it was seen as uh, as, a, as a mistake. But but yeah, you're right. There, there, she did not offer us the sort of uh, images and sort of things that you would want to see when you're running for re-election. Because well, I mean, another, the, the, the collapse of her of her popularity was just phenomenal. Another example of her inability to divorce herself of herself was when she was trying to get the Bears to stay at Soldier Field, and then she said, well, shouldn't you guys be worried about beating the Packers? That That's a good hot take. That works, but that doesn't that doesn't help anything you're trying to accomplish. What was the purpose of that? I would say if you're, if you're still talking about things that we'll remember Lori Lightfoot for, maybe it's the casino, good or bad. Uh, maybe it's NASCAR, good or bad. Maybe it's Continuation with Lollapalooza, good or bad, but Soldier Field has to be foremost among them. Could a mayor have saved the Bears residency at Soldier Field? I will answer no to that, and I will also answer that I don't think that's necessarily a political liability. I don't think that <laughs> Chicagoans are are frantic to keep the Bears in Soldier Field. And, and I mean, I think they would like to keep the Bears in Soldier Field, most yeah. of them, but I don't think they want to invest the money that it would cost to redo right. Soldier Field to the satisfaction of the Bears. I don't. I, I would bet that almost no one voted based on the fact that the Bears might move to Arlington Heights and blaming that on Mayor, Mayor Lightfoot because I don't. I don't know what another mayor would have done. I don't know what I would have done if if my entire purpose was to keep the Bears at Soldier Field. How do you talk them into it? You know, and how do you do it without spending billions of money, billions of dollars, taxpayer money on on a project like that? I, I don't see it happening. I, bears are gone, I believe. Yeah, but then maybe you could have at least massaged that whole scene more. Put it this way, Eric, if it was inevitable and maybe it was even the right thing to do, 
she made it look like a loss. That's true. She never she never really said, well, here she she never controlled the narrative in terms of like, okay, here's what we're willing to offer you, and if it's not good enough for you, be gone. Enjoy Arlington Heights. Uh, we'll see, uh, and we'll make good use of Soldier Field as it exists now. One last um, thing, guys. Before we go on, I do want to talk about uh, Scott Adams and the Dilbert cartoon strip. But um, then what do you guys think about what's going to happen in the next six weeks? And we've all agreed that the campaigning is probably going to get nastier than what we've seen so far. And Vallis is obviously first out of the gate with 34% to Brandon Johnson's little over 20%. Um, what, what do you expect is going to happen? The uh, I, I, well, first of all, I do. I think that the debates over issues are going to be really interesting and really robust. I think there's going to be an, a lot of really interesting conversations about crime and policing. I think there's going to be some really interesting and vigorous conversations about education policy. Uh, and I also think there's going to be a lot of mudslinging, a lot of characters, uh, ca- character attacks. We're going to see those. And I think, and I also agree that there's going to be a lot of money thrown in this race from outside sources because if you if you uh control the narrative of the mayor of chicago then you control a lot of things i think you're going to see union money not just from teachers unions but other unions from all over the state maybe all over the country coming to uh to help brandon johnson this may be just an incredibly expensive record-setting uh, mayor's race for races all, all around the country it's it's a really 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 distinct stark contrast in styles you have kind of a crisis manager policy wonk bureaucrat versus a an ideologue with an extraordinary uh, grassroots political machine behind them and i i think Vallis comes into this race with some advantages in terms of where he actually stands on issues in terms of the coalition of his support so far but i think it would be really really silly to dismiss the fact that you have a candidate that has serious, serious political muscle on the ground in the form of a government union and several, a coalition of government unions around them uh, that has funded his 95-plus percent of his campaign, uh, not to mention the legions of door knockers and texters and, and phone callers. So uh, it's going to be a barn burner. Producer Pete just handed us this statement from Mayor Lori E. Lightfoot. Today, Superintendent David Brown informed me he would be resigning as of March 16th. I accept the resignation and want to commend him for his accomplishments, not just for the department, but for the entire city. It goes on for another half a page. I guess no surprise there. Uh, she was the only candidate who said that she would keep him. I'm, I'm surprised that he would leave now. Why not wait? Until you've got a new mayor, I think the new mayor is going to be inaugurated in probably early May. Is that when that happens? Do you remember? I think I think it's in May. Just I mean, because you're going to have to have an interim superintendent, which is just not necessarily good. Why not wait? Give the new mayor some runway to figure out who he wants to be the next police superintendent and have a smooth transition. I, I uh, I'm, I'm a little dismayed by that news, frankly. Yeah, it seems a little reckless in some sense and not really in the best interest of the city where you have someone saying, yeah, you're going to fire me. Well, I quit, you know, <laughs> and this is the person in charge of really like the, the public safety and constitutional policing of the city. But he, could, um, he, he could, he could have, but he could have announced his resignation as of, and again, I wish I knew the date, but say May 5th. Is that when the, that may be when the inauguration, some, sometime like I'm, I'm resigning effective yeah. this date. And give a lot of time to choosing a new superintendent because this idea of having an interim superintendent 
it just it can't be good for the police department. I I'm uh, I'm just I'm disappointed by that. The statement includes her saying she's commending him for setting a record number of illegal gun recoveries for two consecutive years, leading a double digit reduction in violent crime in 2022. Significant, consistent progress on the consent decree. Austin, you might want to get a cup of water. Standing up a full-time recruitment team that yielded over 950 new hires and expanding the resources for officer wellness. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say, you know, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Scott Adams, the Dilbert cartoonist who appears in papers all around the country. He's uh, wildly popular, syndicated, also writes books, uh, political books as well. He's been a champion of Donald Trump for as long as Donald Trump's been a candidate. He said something on his YouTube channel the other day about a Rasmussen poll, which asked if you agree with the statement... It's okay. The, the line is, it's okay to be white. Do you agree <laughs> that it's okay to be white? Yeah. And 26% of black people surveyed, they, they asked everybody, 26% of black people said they disagree with that statement. And the, the thing about that- 26 or 56? 26. 26%. And then another, another like 17% or something like that weren't sure. It was still under 50% either said they-, they uh, um, they did disagree with it or they weren't sure. And the problem with that question, uh, first of all, is that it was just designed to inflame people. It, the, the expression, it's okay to be white, is something that has sprung out of the white supremacy movement. That it's very much, uh, it, it's, a, it's a very tendentious uh, statement. It's one that's politically charged. And if you were to ask people, say, do you think that we should try to to remake our country in a way? Do you agree with the statement that we should try to have our country be made uh, in the way that, that makes it a, a better country, the way in some ways that it used to be? Uh, do you agree with that statement versus asking them, do you agree that we should make America great again? Because make America great again, like this, it's okay to be white statement, is, is a statement that has a political context and a social context. If you if you were to say, do you agree that all lives matter, for instance? Yes, all you might say, yes, I agree that all lives matter. But if, if you take it out of the context that this is a rejoinder to the Black Lives Matter saying, and it's widely seen as, as maybe slightly racist to say all lives matter. If you look at Make America Great Again as a statement that is equivalent to saying that I back Donald Trump, then you can understand why People who have heard of this or understand the context will say, no, I don't agree with the statement it's okay to be white because I know that it's associated with this white supremacy movement. And so that result is is meaningless and kind of a grab-ass question from Rasmussen, a conservative polar. I don't understand why Scott Adams got so head up about it and and said, what, what was it he said? you have the exact quotes he had, something in there about, about how uh, I think black people are a hate group, and I'm going. To, and white people should avoid them if at all possible. It's just, just uh, incredibly awful things that Scott Adams said in response to this 
ridiculous poll question. It's uh, it's quite a story. It is okay to be white. I did not know that was the subtext, and I saw it alluded to, but I haven't heard anybody explain it. That I haven't read evidently enough about it, Eric. I saw that line, and I thought, okay, I'm sure that's a double-edged sword, or there's more to that sentence than it's okay to be anything. He must have been aware of the subtext about where that came from, right? Well, Adams might not have been aware of it. I, I don't know. He certainly took advantage of whatever conclusion he wanted to draw from that response to go just way, way over the top. But he's been this this rascally commentator for a while. He's been pretty far out in the right. He endorsed Donald Trump. That was no secret. This was just a quantum leap into <laughs> open racism in, in a way that I was very surprised to see, to the point that, uh, as we have been saying, that maybe he was deliberately committing career suicide because he wanted to move on. As a as an extremely online person, I think Scott Adams was pr- would have been aware of the connotation of that statement, and I thought it was also interesting. Around the same time, I, was this this week the cartoon that he published, the Dilbert cartoon he published? That's essentially a three panel cartoon. It's a white office worker saying, "I brought in whatever Larry. He is our newest diversity, equity, and inclusion hire. Larry's black in the cartoon, and Larry basically says, I identify as white.'" And the person who hired him says, you're, you're really ruining this for me or something like that. And the, the, which like, I don't know, as divorcing that from Scott Adams may be kind of funny, but, uh, it's printed in papers that are black and white and it's, you, it's printed such that you can't tell that one of the characters is is supposed to be black. So it looks just like two people, two white, white people talking to each other about racial politics and makes no sense. Um, I, I yeah I hope we get to forget about Scott Adams. I feel like we've I've seen him so much less since Trump was out of office until this story. And when Trump was in office, he was the guy who was like Trump's a psychological genius. He's a yes. He's a mastermind of persuasion. Yes. He had all of these sort of like kooky psychoanalytics about why he's such a such a master. And he kind of slowly faded away as Trump did. I noticed that just in reading a little bit about it again this week, Austin, how he attributes the things that Trump has said to some sort of brilliant scheme that Trump was actually executing. And I thought, "Mm, he just says stuff and it works, and he doesn't know why it works. He's just saying stuff. He had a lot of early on following by simply being someone who said, hey, uh, this guy is very good at riling people up in speeches and speaking plainly. Yeah, uh, and and as one of the few people early on saying that, I think he kind of rode that that wave for years. But so while he may be an awful person, the comic strip still looks pretty good. It's still generally talking about things a lot of people relate to, and we've come to know and love the characters. And a lot of people, boy, when we all had cubicles, would be pinning uh, Dilbert comics to our softboards there. Whatever one resonated most with us. So is what he said as the cartoonist, should you therefore cancel the cartoon? Boy, I hate the word cancel in that sentence. But um, what would you do, Eric, if you were the editor of the Tribune or if you were his syndicator? It's so far over the top, like his remarks were. I think you have no choice but to pull his his strips out of your paper. I I think the association is is too great. It's it's like – you know, running Bill Cosby reruns at this point. I, I think you just you just don't do that at some point. If you have someone who's probably, I mean, I I never thought the Tribune should have pulled the Scott Adams cartoons before this. I didn't like his politics, and I kind of didn't like the idea of, su- of supporting him. But but I, I certainly realized that he was within the, you know, at least the uh, the guardrails of the, the you know normal political commentary. 
And I, I think when someone when someone goes that far afield, and, and you know, my my standards of tolerance are pretty high for this kind of stuff. I I think dissent is a good thing. I think con- different points of view is a good thing. I think they should be they should be aired. Uh, I think there's some really interesting conversations to be had about someone like J.K. Rowling and and people who who ex- are expressing mainstream views that are really really angering to certain populations. Uh, that's not what we have here. I think we have we have Scott Adams expressing a really poisonous, toxic, racist point of view that that does require distancing yourself. But are you from trying that. to deny him income? Is that what it is? Is that the appropriate punishment? Because Dilbert doesn't talk about those things. Yeah, I, well, I'm saying that I'm saying that as the editor, I would want I, w- I would keep my publication away from Scott Adams, um, and whether it denies him income or not, I would I would not go to the court. I would go to the government and say we must stop Scott Adams from talking or drawing. But I said I don't want to be associated with, with someone who is that okay. far there. And that, but, that, but that would be my. The reason I ask that is because some people have grappled with: Should I still be listening to R. Kelly music? And if you're streaming him, maybe he's getting a penny. But if you're listening to him on a CD, maybe he's not. So it's still okay to enjoy R. Kelly music, even though we now know who R. Kelly is. Would you judge the Tribune because there was still a Dilbert? cartoon there some sort of endorsement of this man's personal views do you drop the cartoon as well if it's my paper yes um i would you just hire scott stantis or or an eric ali there's plenty of good political cartoonists uh around that you could you could maybe replace that real estate with uh yeah i think what he we said is pretty pretty awful and it's one thing to separate art from the artist especially when there's like distance between uh, the what what's happened and when you're consuming the art. So like, I don't know if people are thinking about racist anti-Japanese propaganda when they're reading Dr. Seuss. Uh, you can still say you know there's works of his that are valuable. And I think in a similar way, people will be buying like Dilbert collections of comics for decades because it captures like an era of American society and sort of like office space style humor. But in terms of the present day continuing to pay, it'd be like booking R. Kelly at your venue every week. You know, that's different than maybe throwing it on in the comfort of your own home. Yeah, yeah. Hey, by the way, this has just moved to producer Pete hands me this statement from David O. Brown, superintendent of police in Chicago. I have accepted a job opportunity to be the chief operating officer of Lonkar Lyon Jenkins, a personal injury law firm with seven offices in Texas. I will be stepping down as Chicago police superintendent March 16th. So the incoming mayor can begin the process as soon as possible to hire the next superintendent. So he's doing them a favor, Eric, by leaving early so that they can get their guy on the ground when they come in. Nonsense. <laughs> May the good Lord bless the city of Chicago and the men and women who serve and protect this great city stay safe and well, says David O'Brown, our outgoing superintendent. Okay, I think that about wraps it up. Eric, what are you thinking over there? Well, we got to let Austin go, and and uh, I got to get back to my my uh, southern vacation here. <laughs> yeah, you're in Savannah. Is that the backdrop you're showing us? That's the backdrop. Yeah, in Savannah again. Yeah, yeah, that worked out for you yeah. last year. Is this going to be an annual thing for you guys? It's this is the third year in a row we've done this. Yeah, it's beautiful mm-hmm. down there. Where's your go to, Austin? Hey, you- Where's your getaway? I've been so as a kid growing up. 
uh, as like kind of an awkward person. I was like, I always thought of Miami as a place where I would go and like just immediately get beat up or like made fun of. <laughs> but I love Miami now. And I, I, I think it's a great place. I like going there. Um, I usually go there once a year. But now also, I mean, my parents moved from Illinois to Holland, Michigan. So now I'm going up to Holland, Michigan in the winter, too. That's sort of like a we love it nice up there. little getaway place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, Austin, you got to go, man. Thanks for checking in. See you. Congratulations on the quarter million downloads on Give Us the Title of That Movie Again. Local One, The Rise of America's Most Powerful Teachers Union. And you can watch that on YouTube, right, too? Yes, sir. Okay. Go, boy, go. There he goes. That's Austin Berg. Hey, I wanted, to make a, I wanted to make an offer to Vincent Rascal's uh, listeners that if they write to me and put in the subject line uh, Rascals and they want a free, a free subscription, I'll give them free six months to my Picayune Plus as well as the Picayune Sentinel. I put it at the end of the podcast here so that we have that <laughs> dedicated dedicated, uh, dedicated Mincing Rascals listeners. But if you, if you write to me with uh, uh, Rascals offer uh, to uh, ericzorn at gmail.com, I'll give you a free six month, no strings attached subscription to Picayune Plus as well as the Picayune Sentinel. So that's yeah, a great deal. If you're still listening to this, you are a Rascals devotee, so uh, you're going to be rewarded by getting six free months of the Picayune Sentinel Plus with extra features and, and recipes and things that Eric throws in there. No recipes, but I do. the Picayune Plus has the uh, weekly uh, visual tweets poll where I have the best, the funniest visual tweets. The, the regular issue has the, the ones that are just words, but the, the visual tweets on Tuesday, people say they love those. So. I do, and I, I must say, as a guy who tries to collate 10 jokes a day, the fact that you come up with all those great tweets, visual and otherwise, each week, strikes me as an astounding amount of work. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's not, but they're all really good. And, you know, I've got Twitter, and every now and then one will pop, and I go, oh, that was pretty good. But you must look at thousands to come up with your poll. I do. It's it's just part of my work routine. And, and I, I find other things on Twitter, so it's not like just a really waste of time. But I enjoy it. I enjoy what I find on Twitter, and so I'm, I'm always scouring it. First thing I do in the morning, last thing I do at night. Kind of me too. Yeah. But then do you? But there are some people you follow who you know are almost always going to give oh. you a, a good one or two. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've got a whole list of people who I have a, a separate a separate uh, category for them, and I make sure I see what they've been posting too. So it's a it's a whole thing. CNN interviewed me once. They were going to do a whole feature on on how I collated tweets, and then I guess some producer looked at it and said. This isn't all that interesting. And so they killed me. <laughs> oh they darn! Killed the story. They should come back to that. Where's it was, where, my, it was my big break. I'll tell our friends break. at News Nation. Hey, if you've got a, a week segment, you know that is a, a hole in the schedule. I've got a great feature right. story idea, and it won't be weak. Well, Austin clicked all right. out. All of our other friends couldn't be here today, uh, probably because they're all writing or doing stories about the mayor's race. But thanks for your thoughts on all of that, Eric. Yeah, it's, it's been fun, John. I'll talk to you next week on the radio. We are produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. I'm John Williams, and we will drop another podcast on you next week. How long are you down there, right, by man. the way? How long are you down there? Two weeks. Two weeks. Brendan and I are going to go on a trip in the middle of April, like the 17th to the 23rd or something like that. Uh-huh. So I'll be away. Will you host the podcast? Or I guess John Hansen could, too. I can host it or Hansen can do it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I've done it. I've done it a couple times before. Hansen does a really good job. He's really, really good. So. Yeah, he's always good when he's on this thing. We got to get you to do one of those trips, Eric. I know. I just got to talk to Hansen. <laughs> yeah. All right. 
Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. Thank you.